Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 18. John 18. As we've been walking through our study of the Gospel of John now for about a year and a half, we've come to the Passion Week. We've come to the weekend, the Passion Narrative. And uh, for sure, things are starting to get intense in the story of Jesus. Last week, if you were here, Lloyd uh, began chapter 18 and took us into the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, I think it was one of my favorite Lloyd sermons in a while. He, he talked about the seven clues in the Garden of Gethsemane that sort of all led to, to one conclusion. And the conclusion is Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge, even when things seem to be spiraling out of control, maybe especially when things seem to be spiraling out of control, Jesus is in charge, he is in control, and and I love the way he talked about that last week. Uh, This morning, the passage shifts its attention away from Jesus temporarily to Peter, and we're going to talk about Peter and Peter's failure, you know, his very famous, well-known failure. The denials of Peter are included in all four of the gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's interesting that the scripture puts such emphasis on that. It's one of the most memorable, well-known parts of the the Passion Weekend. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. And and I want us to kind of ask the question, why do we think it's such an important part of the story? Like, why is it highlighted in each of the gospels? And what do we have to learn from it? I want to do something a little bit different this morning with the text. Um, Rather than reading it a bit at a time, I want to read the whole thing. It's a a reasonably long text this morning, and I think it just, it works better if we put it all in context. So I want to start actually back in chapter 13, because on the same night that Peter denies Jesus, Jesus had earlier told him he was going to do that. So I want to get context for that, and we'll pick up in our text this morning. So if you want to flip back in your Bible to John 13, you can. It'll also be on the screens as well, and we can follow along together in John chapter 13. Thank you, Joe. Y'all don't need to know the backstory behind that, but there is. I left it somewhere. Let's just put it that way. Thank you, Joe, for retrieving that. All right, John chapter 13, and I'm going to begin um, the reading in verses 36. We'll read John 13, 36, 38, and then we'll skip forward to 18. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And now skip forward five chapters to chapter 18. And keep in mind, this is now just a few hours later after Jesus said that. And I want to pick up the text. Um, Actually, want to look at a bit of the part that Lloyd covered last week in the garden as Jesus is about to be arrested. Look at verse 10 of John chapter 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who'd advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And then we're going to pick up 
the rest of the story with our text for this morning, verse 15. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the living word of God for us today. Why is Peter's failure such a significant part of the story of Jesus's death and resurrection? All the disciples failed in the end, but Peter was the leader. He wasn't just a disciple. You know, Peter was the bold one. He was the one who had, had just been given the name, the rock, Peter, the rock. Peter was the one who'd just sworn earlier that night that he'd die with Jesus. Peter was the one who pulled out his sword. He was the first one to try to defend Jesus in the garden. And then he dramatically folded. He collapsed under pressure. What's going on? I want to see three things. I want us to see three things in the text this morning from Peter's story, and they're all about failure. And I want us to dig in a little bit to Peter's failure because, of course, I think the reason that this story resonates with us so much is because we can identify with it. I think this story grabs us in part because we all know what it feels like to fail. And specifically, as followers of Jesus, we know what it feels like to tell Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And then our life just doesn't live up to it the way we thought it would or the way we hoped it would or the way we think Jesus wants it to. And so this morning, we're going to see what can we learn from Peter's failure about us. And in specifically, I, I want to talk about sin because sin is obviously at the core of his failure and our failure. Sin is missing the mark. And so what we're going to learn from Peter's story this morning is, number one, what Peter's sin is. That's the first part of the message. We're going to look at Peter's sin inside and out, above the surface, below the surface, really explore what sin is and how it's manifesting itself in Peter. Number two, what Peter's sin costs him. And number three, what Peter's hope is. So Peter's sin, what Peter's sin costs him, and Peter's hope, which, of course, will bring us to our hope as well. So let's start with number one, Peter's sin. What was Peter's sin? Well, 
The first answer you gave is, well, he denied Jesus. And, and that's true. He denied Jesus. I think that's a little bit hard to us to relate to a little bit. It, it's not as frequent in our day that someone would come up to you and say, are you a follower of Jesus? And you feel pressure to say no. You know, maybe that day is coming, but, but I don't know that that's typical for us. So Peter's failure of denying Jesus is a little bit harder for us to relate to maybe. But the difficulty goes away when you look at what Peter actually did. And we suddenly see ourselves pretty quickly. Look at verse 17. Let's zoom in on that verse for a minute. This is Peter's first denial. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. By the way, the second um, denial is the exact same question, you know, worded the same way. So the clearest and most simple answer to the question, what's Peter's sin? Well, Peter lied lied. Now, now we can identify a little bit more. It's like, okay, yeah, I'd, I've done that. You know, I can tend to do that from time to time and bend the truth a little bit. Peter spoke something that wasn't true. That's by definition a lie. I want you to notice something here about how the question is worded. Again, it's worded twice the same way that the servant girl says, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? It's, it's sort of a presumption of innocence in a way. You know, innocence in this case being like, you know, not being one of the followers of Jesus. So she's sort of assuming that he's not a follower and, and she's sort of just verifying that. And what stands out to me about the way that's worded is it makes it so easy for Peter to lie. It makes it so easy for Peter just to kind of go along with it because there's a, the presumption that he's not a part of Jesus' following. I, I think Peter's response is sort of a, a Peter's way of saying there's nothing to see here. Let's keep on thinking what you're thinking about me. I'm not a follower of Jesus. It's possible that Peter may have actually thought this was a strategic move that would allow him to stay close to Jesus in case real trouble arose. That wouldn't surprise us based on what had just happened in the garden, but we don't fully know what Peter's motivations are at this point. We just know that, that he was sort of offered like an easy out. You know, it's like, you're not one of them, are you? And he was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I was thinking about how often I've done something like that. You know, I, I, I think we could probably all identify. You get caught in a moral dilemma. You, you get caught maybe in an embarrassing situation and and, and you find an easy way out and you just kind of go along with it. And all it requires is just not saying the full truth, you know, or maybe just like Peter did, just <clears throat> denying something, you know, just a little bit, just kind of going along with what people already thought. My guess is Peter did not put thought into where this was going to go. There's no way he knew that he was going to be asked again and again and that the stakes were going to get higher. There's no way he understood what it would cost him. But once he took that path, it was really hard for him to go back. I like the way um, a writer, William Temple, put it when he was writing about this passage. He said, to accept the suggestion of the first question is scarcely more than a refusal to look for trouble. Peter had little more to do than let well alone but that little more is fatal. What was fatal? Why was this little lie, you know, this little white lie, you might even call it, why was it fatal? Well, let's dig a little deeper into Peter's sin. So if you think about the surface level sin, like what's visible above the surface is this small little lie. But attached to it, right, down, down below, if you dig a little bit deeper, you're going to see some other things. And the first thing we see underneath Peter's lie is he's breaking a commitment. He's breaking a commitment. Now, what does that mean? In that culture, when someone uh, became a disciple of a rabbi, they made a vow 
to follow that rabbi. And, you know, that meant, of course, you know, following his teaching, following him physically, and outwardly associating with him. To make your identity a disciple of the rabbi, whoever that was. So becoming a disciple in that culture was a commitment to a close, visible, relational connection. A close, visible, relational connection. So in, in disassociating himself from Jesus, even in this one small moment, Peter was breaking his vow. He was breaking his commitment. Now, not only that, but we see a second commitment that Peter was breaking because just a few hours earlier, he'd looked Jesus in the eyes and he'd said, I will die with you. I'm not going to deny you. That didn't even compute with Peter. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm going to die with you. So Peter had made a vow to follow Jesus. He'd made a more immediate, recent vow to, to, to lay down his life with, with Jesus. And, and so here's Peter's little, you know, white lie. You know, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus on the surface. And directly underneath it, connected to it, are, are these broken promises, these, these broken commitments. And I have to imagine that Peter verbally breaking these commitments must have created some tension inside of him. By the way, I think every lie, whether big or small, creates a, a broken commitment at some level, a broken promise at some level. And I think that's true because relationships are only possible when there's, when there's sort of a foundational level of trust. Even our communication, if you think about how humans communicate, when, when you're talking with someone or you're emailing someone or you're communicating in, with someone in any way, there's a foundational presumption that you're speaking truth, that, that you're, you're, you're saying what's true. It, if there wasn't sort of that social contract between humans when we're communicating with each other, communication would be meaningless. <laughs> be like, I don't even know if what you're talking about. It'd be meaningless uh, communication. And what that would mean is there'd be no societies. There'd be no communities. You see, humans have to share a basic commitment to telling each other the truth. Otherwise, there's no basis for trust of any kind and you have a jungle instead of a community. By the way, this is why it stings so bad when someone lies to you. Because even if you don't know them well, they're, they're breaking trust. It's like, I can't connect with you. I can't relate to you. I can't even hardly communicate with you because I can't trust you. We no longer share that and it hurts. The closer they are to you, the more it hurts because now they're breaking a relationship that really matters to you. This is also, by the way, why someone who struggles to tell the truth consistently will always be surrounded by broken relationships. People who find themselves sort of lying, you know, like all, frequently, they, they'll, they'll always struggle to live in community because they're unable to hold trust. And so what was Peter's sin? Well, on the surface, it's lying. You know, there's a lie. Underneath, you have broken commitments. You have some broken trust. And, and I want to go one layer deeper into Peter's sin because by the time you get to his third denial, there's something else that comes to light. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Okay, so up until now, the two questions Peter faced, which was really the same question repeated, you know, two times, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Were very general. It's like, you're not one of them, are you? But the third question is very personal. Did I not see you? you 
in the garden with him. And oh, by the way, the person asking Peter is a relative of the man that Peter just maimed. <laughs> he cut off his ear, you know, and this is this guy's relative. So the stakes suddenly go way up for Peter, don't they? It's like little white lie at the beginning. Then he kind of said it a second time, dug himself in deeper. But now it's like now he's on trial in a sense. There's an eyewitness who thinks he saw Peter, not just in the garden, but the one that lashed out with the sword. And he's putting his finger right in Peter's face. He's saying, I saw you there. And Peter has two choices, doesn't he? (laughs) And so the two choices we always have when we're caught in a lie. You either come clean or you dig yourself further in. And if you dig yourself further in, now you really got to go in, right? Now, Now you're really attaching your identity to this alternate truth, this alternate reality. So that's where Peter goes. Now, the way that John describes Peter's third denial is actually kind of bland. It's kind of tame. He just says, Peter again denied it. But if you look in the synoptic gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see some more details. And I'm going to quote from Matthew's account because Matthew tells us a little bit of what Peter actually, the the way that he denied it. Okay, here's what Matthew says. Peter began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Do you see how deep Peter went at that moment? Do you see what started kind of being revealed Inside of Peter, what started kind of erupting out of him. I think this is the moment where Peter's fear comes out. He realizes he could be in big, big trouble. This is not a game. And and in that moment of pressure, something deep inside of Peter is exposed. And, 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 And this is it. He's not actually willing to die with Jesus. That's not his true commitment. His true commitment is his own self-preservation. What really matters to him, like when the pressure is on, right, is to protect his own skin. That's his true commitment. That's the commitment he's choosing to live into in that moment. So here's the deepest layer of Peter's sin, right? It just is raw for all of us to sort of see. Not only did he, did, did he lie, he, he broke a commitment to Jesus to, to, to die with him, but then underneath, at, at sort of the core level, is revealed a more important and powerful commitment inside of Peter, which is a commitment to his own self-protection and preservation. And in the moment the curses and the swearing comes out, Peter has traded his allegiance to Jesus for his allegiance to himself. Or maybe what's been revealed is what was there all along. So that's a look at Peter's sin. And I I don't want you to miss the ugliness of it. And I don't want you to miss how bold the scripture is to put the ugliness of the leader of the church and his sin in the center of the passion narrative. Fascinating. But before we move on to point two, it's worth just for a moment to consider how similar our own sin is how our own sins have layers. Underneath every one of our sins are broken commitments, broken promises to God, to ourselves, maybe to others. And ultimately, if you dig down deep beneath those broken commitments and those broken promises, you'll find the same primary commitment in you as what we find in Peter. 
a commitment to our own self-interest, a commitment to protecting our own lives and reputations above all else, a commitment to seeking our own desires above what God may want, above what others may need from us. Martin Luther described the sinful nature as the incurvature of the soul. I think that's such a helpful description because it gives me a picture of a being turned in on itself, a soul curved in, turned in on itself, only self-focused. The gaze of the soul turned inward is not toward God, is not even toward other people. Ultimately, our souls, you all, are curved inward. And every time we sin, that's actually our fundamental posture. We're elevating our own needs and our own desires above God, above others. And here's what I want us to see next. It always costs us. So this is part two. What does Peter's sin cost him? John ends his account of Peter's denials with the rooster crowing. And, and, and that's all it says. And then, you know, it moves on. And you'll see next week it's going to move on to, to Jesus in front of Pilate. But in the other gospel accounts, we get a, a, another couple of details. And I want to mention this again. Matthew tells us that as soon as the rooster crowed, Peter remembered what Jesus had said about denying him three times. Like that, that's when it hit him. And then Matthew uses these words. He went out and wept bitterly. He went out and wept bitterly. Another way you could translate that is he, he burst into tears. Why did Peter weep? I think it was an outward sign of what was happening internally. I think Peter was falling apart. Why was Peter falling apart? Because he didn't know who he was anymore. Was he the man who just told Jesus over supper that he would follow him in death? Or was he the man that just told the servants around the fire that he didn't even know who Jesus was? Peter lost himself. I think Peter lost himself because as human beings, our sense of self is formed by commitments we make. Let me illustrate that. Our sense of self is formed by the commitments we make. What makes a husband or a wife, a true husband or wife. A vow that they say in front of God and witnesses at a wedding ceremony. What is that vow? It's a commitment, a commitment to forsake all others and devote themselves only to this one. What makes a parent, a true parent, a commitment to nurture and protect a child as part of their own family? What makes a friend, a true friend, a commitment to faithful presence with another person through highs and lows of life? What makes an athlete an athlete? What makes an artist an artist? A commitment to the discipline of the sport or the discipline of the art, you see. Our commitments form identities in us. So I would say I am Rob, a husband, a father, a friend, a son, a brother, a pastor, a follower of Jesus. Each of these is a commitment that I have made. And each of our commitments cost us something. 
To, to be a husband costs me some freedom. I can't go and do whatever I want to do anymore. I'm committed to this one woman. To be a parent costs us freedom. To be a follower of Jesus costs us something. But these sacrifices we make, according to these commitments, also give us something. They give us a sense of who we are. They give us an identity. So what happens when we break the commitments we lose little pieces of ourselves. We lose a little part of our identity. And I think this is where we find Peter. He's a broken man. He's shattered inside. Like, who am I anymore? Can I even call myself Peter? Peter means rock. A rock is solid. I'm anything but. I want you to imagine for a minute that this stick represents Peter's commitment. The stick represents Peter's commitment to follow Jesus. And, and visibly, it was his commitment to follow Jesus that identified Peter as a disciple. Where Jesus went, Peter went. When Jesus was healing, Peter was right there helping people come to Jesus. When Jesus was teaching, Peter was listening. He was very obviously, very visibly committed to Jesus as his rabbi, as his master. And then one night, here's what happened. He said, I'm not one of his followers. And then he said it again. I'm not one of his followers. And then he said it a third time. I don't even know that man. And here's what's left of Peter the disciple. He's a fragmented man. He's a broken man. Who am I? He says. He went outside and he wept bitterly. What's left of Peter? What's left of the rock? What's left of the leader of the disciples? Peter was broken because he didn't know who he was anymore. His desires inside of him were in conflict with each other. I think there was a, a part of Peter that really did want to fulfill his vow to Jesus. And really did want to lay down his life if necessary with Jesus. But when it all came down to it, a different desire won out. I can identify with that. I have desires that wage war inside of my heart. You have desires that wage war inside of your heart. Is there any of us who can't identify with Peter? But here's what I think the scripture wants us to see from the story. Know what our sin costs us. When we break our commitments to God, to one another, we become fragmented people. We, we, we become pieces of who we were created to be. And so this brings us to the third part of the message this morning. What is hope for restoration? <laughs> what is Peter's hope and ours? You know, John does something very interesting and unique in his telling of the story of Peter's denials and none of the other gospel writers do it the same way John does it. And, and what it is that John does is in the midst of the three denials of Jesus, John inserts a paragraph about Jesus 
standing before the high priests and answering questions to the high priest because that's what was going on at the same time. Now, what's interesting about this is the other gospel writers also include that information, but they don't put it inside the denials. In other words, John has denial number one and then this paragraph about Jesus and then denials two and three. Why did John organize it that way? What was John trying to show us? I think... He was trying to show us by way of contrast where the most important part of the story was. Because at the exact same moment, Peter was, was, was fragmenting himself and breaking these commitments. Jesus was staying whole. Jesus was staying solid. You see, Peter was, was being asked, you know, uncomfortable questions. Jesus was being asked life and death questions. And while Peter was backing away from his commitments, Jesus was doubling down on his. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered him, speaking to the high priest, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. This is a picture of transparency. And to fully understand what's going on here, you have to understand what the high priest was trying to do. The charge they were trying to stick on Jesus was the charge of a false prophet. They knew that Jesus had, had taught, Jesus had done miracles, Jesus had done all these things. And if they could just prove that he's not from God, how do you identify a false prophet? When he contradicts himself, when he speaks things that aren't true. And so what the high priest is trying to do, he's trying to put a little pressure on Jesus. He's been arrested. He's got the guards all around him. You know, and in a moment, we're going to see Jesus is about to be hit. And under the pressure, the high priest is hoping that Jesus will say something to undo what he said before. And then the priest could say, he's contradicted himself. He's a false prophet. We need to kill him. Now, another way to think about this, and this is so interesting to me, the priest is trying to pressure Jesus into doing the very same thing that Peter is doing by the fire, breaking his word, getting caught in a lie, showing evidence of duplicity, fracturing his identity. And even after the officer hits him, Jesus does not budge. He does not change his story. He doesn't retract his public words. He simply continues to point to truth. He says, I've spoken openly. I have nothing to hide. You'll not hear me say anything different than what all the people have heard. Look with me at verse 23. This is after he, he is, he's hit by the officer. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Here's the point. Uh, okay, dial into this part. You know, if, if you've drifted off a little bit, I understand, right? but if you've drifted off a little bit, dial into this point, because here's the point. While Peter was by the fire lying to avoid punishment, Jesus was telling the truth and being punished for it. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is already starting to live out his identity as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who, who bears the consequences for the sin. Peter broke his commitments and lost his identity. Jesus kept his commitments and confirmed his identity as the scapegoat for the people. Where Peter fragmented under pressure, Jesus stayed solid. Here's Jesus' identity. He did not break 
under pressure. He maintained his integrity. What, what does integrity mean? It comes from integer, a whole number as contrasted with a fraction. He didn't break under pressure. He didn't lose himself. So here's the contrast that John wants you to see. The faithful witness of the whole man contrasted with the unfaithful witness of the fragmented man. But here's what I really want you to understand. John did not make this contrast in order to shame Peter. And he didn't make this contrast in order to shame any of us who are all commitment breakers like Peter. But he made this contrast so that we might see in Jesus the provision for our commitment breaking. That we might see in Jesus a new identity. That we might find in Jesus our true selves. Jesus is the faithful commitment keeper who stands in the middle of our faithless commitment breaking and says, you can't, but I can. And I will. And that is why I have come to fulfill the covenant, the commitment that God has made to his people. And as not only God come to earth, but as a human being as well, to fulfill the other end of the commitment, to fulfill man's part of the commitment, so that God and man may be united, so that they may be whole. And so let me tell you where this story is going. When Peter left the charcoal fire, he was a broken, fragmented man with a shattered identity. And you know what he does? He goes back to fishing. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't know who he is anymore. I'm no longer the rock. I can't call myself a follower of Jesus. I'm certainly not a leader. Let's go fishing. But in the last chapter of John, we're going to see Jesus find Peter when he's fishing. We're going to see Jesus make a charcoal fire and do another miracle with fish and then cook Peter breakfast over that charcoal fire and then ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Each time was an opportunity for Peter to speak his new identity. Yes, Lord, Peter said, I love you. Here's the big takeaway, I think, from Peter's story. If we put our confidence in our own commitments, we'll eventually end up losing ourselves like Peter did. But if we put our confidence in his commitment, we'll find ourselves. We'll find our true selves. This is what Jesus taught. Peter's story is here so we might find the same hope that Peter found. Hope that led him to live out an amazing journey the rest of the way as a leader of the church, as someone who was able and willing ultimately to lay down his life for Jesus when it was required. And Peter's story is here so that we would set aside, I believe, our own efforts to make ourselves solid, that we would put no confidence in our identities 
our man-made identities, our self-made identities. We'd put no confidence in our ability to keep covenants and we would put instead our confidence in him, the covenant keeper. We would lay aside our efforts to make ourselves solid and instead trust him, the whole one, the solid one, the true man. This takes us to the table this morning. I want to invite you to take out the elements of the Lord's Supper that you received when you came in. And, and I'll take a couple of minutes here to make a connection. So if you didn't get one when you came in and you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you're welcome at this table. We invite you to, to join us in it. What I want to encourage us to reflect on as we're preparing to eat the Lord's Supper, receive the Lord's Supper together this morning, is I want, us, I want to encourage us to reflect on the idea that just maybe three hours before Peter's denial, Jesus offered him this meal, knowing full well what was about to happen. In fact, I, I think when, when Jesus gave the bread to Peter, he, he must have been looking ahead to Peter's denials that they'd just spoken of. He must have been looking ahead to the charcoal fire. He must have been looking ahead to the second charcoal fire by the sea and the restoration that was to come. He must have been in essence saying to Peter, because you will fail, I'm giving you my life. And this is what this represents for us. The life of Christ traded for ours the body of Jesus broken for you with faith. Receive it with joy. Let's eat the bread. And in the same way Jesus offered the cup, he said, this cup is the new relationship that's in my blood shed for you. Receive it in faith. Our Father, I want to say thank you for this story. Thank you for shepherding Peter's life so well, so faithfully. Jesus, thank you for your kind interactions with Peter that enabled him to be able to tell his story when all is said and done, a story of deep failure. And I thank you that this story is such a significant part of the gospel because we find ourselves here Jesus, we find ourselves in deep need of you. We find ourselves bankrupt before you saying there is nothing in and of ourselves that is worthy and, and deserves you to show your kindness and your forgiveness and your love, but you have. In fact, you offered it to us before we ever sinned. And you continue to offer it to us, even though we still sin. So Father, help us look to you for our identity. Help us put our trust in you. Allow us to cease our striving to be everything we think we should be and allow us just to be able to rest. And as we rest in that confidence, you will transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would be true. We believe that that will be true in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's now stand to our feet. We're gonna sing about that hope Let's sing about that hope this morning. Amen.